0: And that message is very, very clear. Mr. President, we need a national response to federal voting rights.
1: Yes, we need a national response to protect our voting rights. Hope to hear them. All the way out there in DC. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. From Texas.
2: I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. To the left me yep. to the right here
1: I am here. from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., also up in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Good news out of New Mexico today. Also heard in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas' KPSQ, and Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Yesterday on the broadcast, we uh, detailed the dramatic action taken by Democratic lawmakers in the Texas House of Representatives to block, for now anyway, a monster voter suppression bill that GOP lawmakers down there in the Lone Star State were attempting to ram through quite literally in the dark of night at the very end of the year's legislative session. But the Republicans were blocked Again, at least for now, when Democrats late on Sunday night quietly walked out of the House chamber and out of the State House entirely, denying the Republicans the quorum that they needed <clears throat> to vote on on final passage of that bill, uh, before it was set to go to the governor's desk at the end of the legislative session. Very dramatic. Well, after the Democratic lawmakers uh, left the state house, they gathered at a local Baptist church in Austin to uh, speak to the press about what had happened, what they did heroically, in my opinion. And as we noted yesterday, uh, they essentially begged lawmakers in Washington, D.C., to please pass federal legislation to block uh, some of the most suppressive effects of GOP bills. Like Senate Bill 7, the one blocked for now in Texas, and similar anti-voting bills that have already been adopted by Republicans around the country in Iowa, Georgia, Florida, Montana, and if they have their way soon in states like Arizona and Michigan, among others, all in supposed response to Donald Trump's evidence-free big lie that the 2020 election was somehow stolen from him so here was texas state rep trey martinez fisher at the mount zion baptist church in east austin during this uh, early morning press conference after the walkout from the texas state house
0: yesterday afternoon the president of the united states talked about texas of all the things that could be on the mind of our commander-in-chief He has taken a moment to talk about SB 7 and how it is un-American. And we knew today, with the eyes of the nation, watching actions in Austin, that we needed to send a message. And that message is very, very clear. Mr. President, we need a national response
2: to federal voting rights.
1: Yes. Yes, they are begging for a national response. Of course, Texas Democrats weren't the only ones begging for such a response from Congress and the president. On Tuesday, 100 academic democracy scholars did the same thing in in what they described as an open statement of concern. Uh, That about the Republican initiatives around the country, calling them uh, saying that they are, quote, transforming states into political systems that no longer meet the minimum conditions for free and fair elections leaving, quote, our entire democracy now at risk. Well, one of those academic scholars who signed on to that alarming statement, uh, that dire warning, uh, will be joining us shortly to discuss the warning and and what, if anything, can now be done about it to answer to it in in a 50-50 Senate where at least one Democratic uh, senator, West Virginia's Joe Manchin, Desi Doyen's favorite. (laughs) I know whenever I say his name, you make that face. Oh, I cringe. Um, He's still refusing to take the action needed to pass critical federal legislation to protect what the scholars and the Texans describe as, quote, our precious democratic heritage, which is now in peril of becoming a permanent politicized minority rule. That's coming up momentarily, but very quickly, uh, some breaking news that came in after we got off air yesterday. The Federal Election Commission on Tuesday slapped the National Enquirer's parent company, American Media Inc., or AMI, with a $187,000 fine for its role in 2016, the election then, in silencing a uh, Playboy model who claimed she had an affair with Donald Trump. Uh, by paying her what amounted to a $150,000 hush money payment. The FEC settlement comes after AMI reached a non-prosecution deal with the Justice Department back in 2018. The company said it was agreeing to the FEC fine to avoid litigation. It contests some of the FEC's legal conclusions about the company's conduct. But the FEC, meanwhile, cited the 2018 non-prosecution agreement in the announcement of the fine uh, in, in, in noting that uh, in the DOJ agreement, AMI admitted that, quote, the principal reason it gave McDougal one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to buy her story was to suppress that story from coming out and to prevent it from influencing the 2016 election. Of course, Trump has so far been able to avoid prosecution, but his former lawyer, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations for orchestrating the payouts to Karen McDougal as well as to adult film actress Stormy Daniels, another woman who claimed to have had sexual relations with Donald Trump. Well, at the time of uh, Cohn's conviction, before he was sent to federal prison for it, Both Cohn and the DOJ declared that the illegal hush money conspiracy was, quote, directed by Donald Trump himself. The conspiracy for which Cohn went to jail and AMI is now paying off one hundred and eighty seven thousand dollars. After investigating complaints brought by several progressive organizations and watchdog groups like Common Cause, the FEC concluded that AMI's payment to McDougal amounted to an in-kind contribution To Trump's campaign and that they were aware that the undisclosed and that AMI was aware that the undisclosed contribution was, in fact, unlawful. So Cohn went to prison. AMI was fined. Trump orchestrated the entire conspiracy. And yet there has still been no accountability for Trump himself. Now, a week ago, we reported that Republicans on the FEC had quashed the investigation into Trump's own personal role in, the, uh, in this conspiracy but where the FEC oversees civil violations of election and campaign finance law the Department of Justice still has criminal oversight of such laws uh, they ha- now have until August to prosecute Donald Trump for the same thing they sent Michael Cohn to jail for uh, before the statute of limitations will run out on Trump's crime So we will be keeping our eyes on that. (laughs) Oh, yes. In other uh, less criminal election-related news today, yesterday we had noted the special election for the U.S. House underway on Tuesday in New Mexico, largely in Albuquerque in the state's first congressional district, Uh, was ongoing to fill the House seat vacated by Congresswoman Deb Holland, who is now Joe Biden's Interior Secretary. And I noted that though Biden had won the district in 2020 by 23 points and Holland had won her seat that year by 16 points, Republicans were hoping nonetheless if they couldn't win the district outright, at least they would narrow the margin to single districts uh, in what they saw as a potential bellwether for next year's elections in which they hope to retake the U.S. House, as usually happens for the party that is not holding the White House. Well, the results are now in, in that race in New Mexico on Tuesday, and it is not good news for Republicans. Melanie Stansberry, the Democrat, won that race in what is being described as a landslide victory. She captured over 60 percent of the vote while her Republican rival Mark Morris, also a state rep, uh, won just under 36 percent. So that's a nearly 25 point margin in a district where Joe Biden won by just 23 points last year. Uh, and the popular congresswoman that he had elevated to the Interior Department head, uh, Deb Holland, she had only won by 16 points. This time, Stansbury won by 25 points. So, if Republicans were looking for some encouraging signs of Democrats flagging popularity, well, they didn't find it on Tuesday, at least in New Mexico's first congressional district. By the way, Stansbury. She's an environmental policy expert and I don't know if you knew that. And Morris campaigned as a champion of the oil and gas industry.
2: Hmm. How'd
1: that work out for you, sir? Her dominating performance uh, represented an early vote of confidence, according to The New York Times in Democratic leadership at least in a heavily Hispanic district and could quiet some anxiety in the party about its prospects going into the 2022 midterms, says The New York Times. Unfortunately, Democrats have much more to be anxious about in advance of those elections as GOP dominated states around the country right now are in the process of changing the very rules of democracy in order to prevent Democrats from a voting and B to make it easier for Republicans to overturn election results even when Democrats are able to vote. We will continue to sound the alarm as best as we can about all of this on this program, with democracy itself very much at stake in these United States, at least as I see it. Whether the media, the public, or Democrats in Congress and the White House, whether they fully appreciate what is now happening in the shadow of the 2020 big lie, I can't tell you. But we will continue to sound that alarm. That's next on The broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
3: Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
1: (laughs) music
3: Yes indeed scary times
1: Perhaps yeah appropriately so Welcome back to the broadcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com In an open statement described as a statement of concern issued on Tuesday this week more than 100 well-respected democracy scholars some of whom we've had on this show over the years one of which uh, who will be joining us momentarily called on Congress to pass national-level voting rights legislation as an increasing number of GOP-led state legislatures work to implement restrictive laws at the state level, as we have been reporting and warning. We, the undersigned, they write, are scholars of democracy who have watched the recent deterioration of U.S. elections and liberal democracy with growing alarm. Specifically, we have watched with deep concern As Republican-led state legislatures across the country have in recent months proposed or implemented what we consider radical changes to core electoral procedures in response to unproven and intentionally destructive allegations of a stolen election. Collectively, they warn, these initiatives are transforming several states into political systems that no longer meet the minimum condition for free and fair elections. Hence, our entire democracy is now at risk, they write. The group takes aim at restrictive voting laws in red states that give Republicans, as we've been trying to warn on this show, quote, the power to override electoral outcomes on unproven allegations. In the event that Democrats win more votes, state legislatures have advanced initiatives that curtail voting methods now preferred by Democratic-leaning constituencies, such as early voting and mail voting, they write. Republican lawmakers have openly talked about ensuring the, quote, purity and, quote, quality of the vote, echoing arguments widely used across the Jim Crow South as reasons for restricting the black vote. The statement goes on to acknowledge former President Trump's falsehoods about election fraud having a strong influence on Republican voters. They write, quote, in future elections, these laws politicizing the administration and certification of elections could enable some state legislatures or partisan election officials to do what they failed to do in 2020, reverse the outcome of a free and fair election. They write further these laws could entrench uh, could entrench extended minority rule violating the basic and long-standing democratic principle that parties that get the most votes should win elections the scholars who by the way are are not you know far left crackpots or activists Uh, They even include some folks who are pretty far to the right, but largely represent sort of fairly middle-of-the-road academic scholarship. Um, These scholars who are usually if anything, too stayed uh, in their assessments about political realities, in my opinion.
3: Yeah, these are people who actually study democracy around the world and in the United States, so they really do know what they're talking about when they say, hey, there's a really really dangerous pattern being set up right now.
1: Although some of them, by the way, I, you know, I think have been too conservative for years. I've beaten up on some of them over the years for, you know, being too scholarly, too academic. Oh, this is just politics. This is not a real threat to our democracy, whereas I think what we are seeing proved out now, this stuff really is a very real threat to our democracy, and I'm glad that these scholars have taken the time to notice. Yeah,
3: they seem to be having a a hair-on-fire moment, which I think is is long overdue.
1: Yes, me too. But better Uh, late than never. I guess they argue that uh, GOP efforts to delegitimize the election process, coupled with the wave of new restrictive voting laws, now raises questions about whether the U.S., will remain a democracy. As scholars of democracy, they note, we condemn these actions in the strongest possible terms as a betrayal of our precious democratic heritage. Thank you. The group is urging national-level reform to guarantee equal access to voting and fair elections. They write, the most effective remedy for these anti-democratic laws at the state level is federal action to protect equal access of all citizens to the ballot and to guarantee free and fair elections. The group writes, just as it ultimately took federal voting rights law to put an end to state-led voter suppression laws throughout the South, so federal law must once again ensure that American citizens' voting rights do not depend on which party or faction happens to be dominant in their state legislature and that votes are cast and counted equally, regardless of the state or jurisdiction in which a citizen happens to live. After arguing that the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would restore protections from the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that were largely gutted by the U.S. Supreme Court back in 2013, uh, they write, quote, uh, that, you know, restoring the Voting Rights Act is, quote, essential But alone is not enough. They say we urge members of Congress to do whatever is necessary, including suspending the filibuster in order to pass national voting and election administration standards that both guarantee the vote to all Americans equally and prevent state legislatures from manipulating the rules in order to manufacture the results that they want. Our democracy, the group writes, is fundamentally at stake. History will judge what we do at this moment. The, uh, the statement of these democracy scholars, of course, comes just days after Senate Republicans used the filibuster to kill the House-passed bill for the formation of an equally split and balanced bipartisan commission that would have investigated the deadly January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection. And if the if the Senate could not even pass that measure, despite a 54 to 35 majority voting in favor of its creation. How is real reform and protections of democracy itself even imaginable in this climate with a 50-50 Senate tie broken only in Democrats favor by a vote of the vice president But that won't work uh, when a full 60 votes are needed to overcome a Republican filibuster of virtually every measure proposed by Democrats. Passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act at this time kind of seems unthinkable right now, uh, as does passage of the For the People Act, the Democrats' sweeping reform of elections and campaigns, which has already been passed in the House. But as of now, it is awaiting almost certain death in the U.S. Senate, despite 49 of 50 Democrats having signed on as co-sponsors. The one Democratic holdout, of course, is West Virginia's Joe Manchin, who, with Arizona's Kirsten Cinema, are also opposing the reform of the Senate filibuster rule that the Democracy scholars referred to there in their statement of concern. One of those scholars... Author, friend of the show, and Roosevelt University political scientist David Ferris joins us next to discuss where Democrats and democracy itself goes from here at this wildly precarious moment in our nation's history, one that I don't know that Americans fully understand how precarious it is, uh, and to discuss whether Democrats and the American public itself do understand the nature of the threat we are looking at, the threat to democracy itself. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
3: We
2: got to get out of this place last, if this is what we ever do
1: Yeah wish us luck we gotta- we got to get out of it somehow. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So while academic uh, democracy scholars and Democratic leaders and grassroots activists are urgently stepping up pressure on Senator Joe Manchin to support legislation to fight Republican-led voting restrictions across the country, party officials are increasingly concluding that the battle over voting rights could come down to little more than what the institutionally conservative Democrat from West Virginia feels like doing. In a rare show of public frustration with his own party on Tuesday, President Biden speaking in Tulsa appeared to lash out at Joe Manchin when he accused a pair of unnamed senators of aligning too closely with Republicans and stalling efforts to pass sweeping voting standards as he called for this month to be a month of action to shore up American democracy.
2: June should be a month of action on Capitol Hill. I hear all the folks on TV saying, why doesn't Biden get this done? Well, because Biden only has a majority of effectively four votes in the House and a tie in the Senate with two
1: members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. But we're not giving up. That was, to my knowledge, the first time the president has publicly attempted to apply pressure to those two unnamed senators, Manchin and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer recently announced that the uh, Senate would vote this month on the For the People Act, the House passed elections bill co sponsored by every Democratic senator. Except for Joe Manchin, a move that would force Manchin to pick a side in a fight that has taken on new urgency in recent weeks with the passage of more and more voter suppression bills at the state level, which greatly lower the bar for the overturning of legitimate elections, even at the presidential level by partisan state legislatures. Even some of Manchin's Democratic colleagues are now beginning to prod him more aggressively to join their cause, while activists and civil rights leaders are loudly decrying his hesitation. Democrats, according to The Washington Post today, increasingly see an existential threat from Republican-led state governments determined to place new limits on voting, which critics say would disproportionately affect voters of color, A core part of the Democratic coalition, one Democratic congressional aide who, like others, spoke to the paper on the condition of anonymity, said, quote, panic is the right word to describe the mood in the party about all of this right now. Frustration is growing in other quarters as well. The Reverend William Barber, a civil rights leader who attended the Tuesday speech in Tulsa, where Biden appeared to criticize Manchin, said, quote, That is a problem with the Democratic Party. What you see with Republicans, they stick together no matter what. Democrats, he said, need to let Manchin understand we elected Joe Biden, not Joe Manchin, to be president. Democrats are hoping that Schumer's decision to bring the sweeping election and campaign protection and reform measure, the For the People Act, to the floor for a vote this month could force Manchin off of his position, or at least demonstrate to him that Republicans are unwilling to even debate the issue, much less offer the 10 votes needed to overcome a filibuster. But last week, the House passed a bill for, uh, for the bipartisan January 6th commission, failed to pass through the U.S. Senate even after six Republicans joined Democrats to vote in favor of the commission by a majority vote. Just a majority vote that was insufficient to overcome the GOP filibuster, killing the measure despite a 54 to 35 majority in favor of it. Afterwards, when asked if that might be enough to convince him to reform the filibuster, Manchin replied, quote, I'm not ready to destroy our government, adding, I think they will come together. You have to have faith that there's 10 good people. On Tuesday, Manchin reportedly expressed his own frustration with reporters repeated, repeatedly pressing him on his opposition to eliminating or at least reforming the filibuster. He said, quote, I'm not separating our country, Okay, He told The Hill, I don't know what you all don't understand about this. You ask the same question every day. It's wrong, he said. But never mind Joe Manchin for the moment. Do Democrats themselves truly understand and appreciate the urgency of this moment? Or, as Vox.com's Sean Illing headlined a recent interview with my upcoming guest, uh, asked, he said, Are they, quote, Democrats sleepwalking toward democratic collapse? At the same time, do American voters Understand the critical moment that those 100 academic democracy scholars I noted attempted on Tuesday to warn both Congress and the nation about one of those scholars, author, friend of the show and Roosevelt University political scientist David Ferris. Writing in a Twitter thread last month about the seeming brick wall the Democrats face in the U.S. Senate to get anything passed thanks to the resistance to reform the filibuster, even in light of Republican state legislatures adopting laws to make it easier to reverse election results as they see fit, including the 2024 presidential election itself, Uh, David Ferris warned in light of all of that, quote, I'm not sure people appreciate how much danger we are in. This is coming, he said, and if Republicans succeed, they will crack this country in half. It will be ugly and violent, and I really would like to not live through that. We must act now, he added. Joining us now to discuss that and where Democrats and democracy itself goes from here is David Ferris, who, in addition to his work as an associate professor of political science at Chicago's Roosevelt University, is also a contributor to The Week and author of 2018's It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, a book filled with warnings that I am not yet sure Democrats have fully heard. Oh, Mr. Ferris, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It's
0: great to be back, Brad. I swear someday we're going to be talking about something
1: way hearted right? Just uh, not today. Uh, I doubt it. Yeah, based on what we had to talk about today and based on the last you know couple of hours as I've been uh, researching uh, your your coverage on all of this and what's going on, it's kind of creeping me out. Tell me, David, what is your fear, uh, specifically and graphically, if, if Democrats are unable to pass the For the People Act and or the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act in advance of the 2020 election or even the 2024, for elections what 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 is your fear let's let's lay out the worst of it here right here on top
0: yeah sure I mean the the the, for the People Act and, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act are designed to level the electoral playing field um, or to, to go some way towards leveling the electoral playing field so that Republicans don't win the house and win the Senate with a with a minority of the vote mm-hmm. it mandates nonpartisan redistricting uh, which is I think is probably the most important reform in either of those bills. Um, that would make it, you know, easier, not guaranteed, of course, but easier for Democrats to hold House. Um, And so my fear is that Democrats are going to lose the House and the Senate next year, which will make it, uh, which, of course, you know, in and of itself, not the end of the world, right? But uh, there's there's another catastrophe sort of galloping towards us, which is this um, uh, Republican plot to steal the 2024 election with a newer, better more invigorated version of of trump's uh sort of sloppy plot to do it in 2020 Mm -hmm. um and so losing congress next year will make it that much harder to head that plot off at the pass in 2024 and so the worst case scenario here um democrats lose congress next year Uh, they lose a bunch of critical governorships and in the battleground states and, and secretary of state races we have a very similar result in 2024 that is close outcomes in the in the tipping point states in the Electoral College, mm-hmm. and then Repub- Republican legislatures and governors in Michigan, w- Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, who knows where else,
2: mm-hmm.
0: simply send Republican electors to Congress um, instead of who, whoever was chosen by the voters themselves. And, and or those legislatures send their own slates, and those slates are approved by a Republican Congress, and they, like Congress throws out um, um, the legitimate electoral vote, either one of which would be just... Uh, like a world historical catastrophe for for American democracy, and something I'm increasingly worried
1: about. So, when you refer to uh, your fear that Republicans will will steal the election in 2024, you're not actually talking about stealing it through you know, what we what we might expect, voter suppression, shortening voting hours and all of those things that we are seeing them do uh, in these various bills. You're more referring to what I've been trying to highlight, I think, uh, as these bills have been passed, that, you know, each of them sort of include ways in which the state legislature ends up sort of giving themselves the right to actually overturn election results themselves, even in a, a, a case of a clear victory where the uh, the Democrat may have won, whether it's a House race or the president, you know, the state, that they sort of just have the right to overthrow the election, ret- reverse the results as is. That seems to be the, the gravest concern you're, you're focusing on, if I understand it.
0: Yeah, so this is, this is a sort of a, <clears throat> uh, we've graduated from routine Republican voter suppression, election interference, uh, sort of low-level Election theft. I would I would refer to it to mm. uh, to what I think of as a, as a more integrated plot mm. to install their preferred candidate in twenty twenty four. Could be Trump. Could be whoever you know Ron DeSantis or whatever maniac gets the nomination. <laughs> and uh, and so it's best to think of these voter suppression bills that are making their way through Republican state legislatures as having two purposes. You know, one is of course to make it harder for Democrats to win, even if nothing else happens. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So, and in, in, you know, in, in, in the Texas bill, they um, they moved Sunday voting back to the afternoon, so that people cannot go directly from churches to mm-hmm. to, to vote. They, basically, what they did was they were like, "How are all the ways that Democrats voted?
2: <laughs> <Yep. laughs>
0: twenty twenty, let's make that all illegal." Right. Okay. So no more no more drive through voting, no more drop boxes. They can't identify any problems with these practices. Right. Um, mm-hmm. They just they just don't like that they were used in heavily democratic areas. Mm-hmm. But and it, so I think the hope is that like that alone mm-hmm. will ensure that Republicans win Texas in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four. But if they don't, mm. they have this backup plan. Yep, and that is even scarier uh, to me. But they're they're both pretty awful.
1: And <laughs> now to be clear, if uh, you know to, to to pull something like that off the, at the presidential level. You know, it would have to be both houses of Congress, as I understand, would have to, uh, you know, reverse a legitimate election result out of Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, wherever it may be. Uh, And you seem to be suggesting, as as long as Democrats can hold on to one of those two houses, they might be able to stop a plot like that. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. Um, My concern, though, is that, so the, the, the Congress that will be counting the electoral votes in 2024 will be the one elected in 2024, hmm. and so I have an additional related concern, I haven't really written about this, but, but that if we lose both the House and the Senate next year, that the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate may not give it back to us, <laughs> even if we win in 2024, because those mechanisms of election overturning uh, will also work on House races and Senate races. Oh, um, man. And so it's entirely plausible to me that the House leadership or the Senate leadership will will somehow refuse to, to step aside and in 2024 there are more Democratic senators up for re-election than there are Republican senators so when when um, when terms when the terms of those senators up in 2024 expire
2: mm-hmm.
0: no matter who wins the Republicans will be in charge of the Senate for some brief period of time until the new people are sworn in mm-hmm. so in my mind it's incredibly important actually not to kick away both houses of Congress next
2: year
1: yeah <laughs> well <laughs> I like and- really really important. And, and, and thus the statement of concern, as, as you guys headlined it, that uh, that you guys signed on to, the 100 uh, democracy experts signed on to, uh, trying to warn about what is coming. You, you mentioned during that interview I mentioned uh, you did a few weeks ago with Vox.com's Sean Illing. Uh, headlined, "Are Democrats Sleepwalking Toward Democratic Collapse?" That you quote, "Worry complacency has set in on the Democratic side, and people are lulled into thinking things are normal and fine just because Biden's approval ratings are good." Uh, that's something that we we've seen before, of course. You know, after George W. Bush, Democrats uh, who had been very involved in all aspects of the political process freaked out by what was going on uh, during the Bush administration, they sort of took a break because, you know, out of exhaustion, which I can't blame them. But, you know, also once Barack Obama took office, I think, you know, they felt like, okay, we're safe again. Everything is fine. But that allowed for the rise of the Tea Party and ultimately Donald Trump that came out of that. Uh, Are you suggesting you're seeing a similar pattern today? Now that Joe Biden is safely in office, and people feel things are fine and back in control after four out of control years uh, under Trump are you know are are is the American public fully appreciating what seems to be going on here yet?
0: I don't think so. No. I mean, I, I think there is some complacency. I don't think it's quite as bad as it was in two thousand and nine. <laughs> um, but there's a combination of just like we're all exhausted from covid. Uh, mm-hmm. We were all exhausted by the Trump administration. We did get a you know a, a pretty great bill in the first month of the Biden administration, and people mm-hmm. are happy about that. Mm-hmm. And there's this cyclical you know time loop thing, yeah, where people assume that because the president's popular in this first three, four, five months, that we'll be okay in the midterms, even if we don't do anything. And that's just like not the pattern of American history. You know, at this point on this day in 2009. Barack Obama had a, you know approval rating that was 28, 29 points above water. Democrats were leading the generic congressional ballot. That's the question that asks you mm-hmm. would you vote for Democrats or Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, we had super majorities. We had a super majority in the Senate, a huge majority in the House. Mm-hmm. It just looked like, you know, sunny days ahead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's just not what
2: happened. Nope.
0: The reality of American politics is that the out party is, is always going to be more motivated than the in party mm-hmm. to get back into power. They're outraged by whatever is happening. And I do think that there is a sense among, you know, a majority of the Democratic caucuses in both chambers of Congress that the reforms, you know, that H.R. 1 is important, that the Voting Rights Act is important. I think that they know Republicans are up to no good. What I don't think that they understand is that it's sort of an existential problem at this point, Mm. that we may only have one or two elections left before Mm. Republicans do so much damage to the institutions of democracy, or they do something so outrageous that, that it really could lead to some kind of violent or maybe non-violent but probably be violent crack up of the country yeah. which is what i'm i'm most concerned about and in- you know, people are like that's just that's just doom porn, David. And I'm like, no, I'm really worried about this. Yeah, no. I don't want to live through this. I don't want my son to live through this. That sounds horrible.
1: No, it, <laughs> so, it does sound horrible. And 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 I'm I'm not sure even I appreciate it. I you know I tend to appreciate it more when I when I read, uh, you know, from those experts, uh, you know, that that warning and uh, some of whom others of whom we've had on this show as well. And the more I read, the more troubled I get by it. Um, do, do you have confidence, David Ferris, that? Uh, Even if, and and we'll get to Joe Manchin in in one moment, so buckle up, but uh, even if somehow Democrats were able to pass the For the People Act and or the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, that that would in fact, prevent what it is that you are so concerned about and the power that these Republican state legislatures appear to be giving themselves to overturn elections? Because I'm not sure, at least in the For the People Act, that there's anything really that, you know, in, in that bill in any event that, that would stop that from happening.
0: No, there's not. Um, so you can think of the, of the two reforms that are on the table at this point. Mm -hmm. as being sort of necessary but not sufficient to save American democracy. The real loopholes in our democratic institutions are the ones that Trump figured out that he could possibly exploit last year. And those are, I'm sorry to bore people with arcane stuff here, but those are like the the loopholes in this preposterously badly written statute called the Electoral Count Act of 1887, Mm -hmm. which is so ambiguous that there's like multiple constitutional legal interpretations of it. Mm -hmm. But the gist is that the, the language of it appears to give Congress the right to uh, arbitrate a dispute between various legitimate institutions who are forwarding what they say are the legitimate electors
2: mm-hmm. to Congress.
0: And that with simple majorities in both chambers of Congress, they can either throw those out, or they can choose the alternate slate or whatever they want. Um, and so the For the People Act and the, and the Voting Rights Act will make it easier for Democrats to hold on to power in Michigan, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, but it, it will not guarantee that, mm-hmm. right? That is, I think people forget all this discourse about election theft. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is still possible for Republicans to, like, win elections fair and square, right? But that's actually something that could still happen.
2: Um, I think it's
0: less likely than it was 20 years ago, but it's still possible. Right. And so what really needs to happen is we've got to get those reforms through, and then we've got to have the next stage of the conversation.
1: Yeah, because there's... And the next same...
0: stage of the conversation is, like, how do, we fix the, how do we fix the procedures by which we count the electoral votes? And there's
1: really there's not easy answers about that. No, there's not, and the the answers get less easy. Um, the, frankly, the fewer Democrats there are who are willing to who are in Congress and who are willing to do something about it. In in uh, in your interview with with Sean Illing uh, at Vox, you said uh, where Joe Manchin seems to be very far away from what House Democrats want to do uh, on the democracy reform stuff. It's maddening because. Nothing that Manchin wants to do policy-wise can get done without abolishing the filibuster, which leads me to the question, you know, Manchin doesn't seem to, uh, clearly doesn't want to abolish the filibuster, but what exactly does Joe Manchin want to do policy-wise? Because I really don't know what that is, David.
0: I don't know either. I mean, I, I don't know what he wants to do. I don't know what Kirsten Cinema wants to do. I think Cinema you know, was down in Texas today with John Cornyn. Talking about the the sanctity of the filibuster, and just like it, it, made my head explode.
1: She was down there. Um, wait, she was down there with John Cornyn talking about correct. the sanctity of the filibuster.
0: Yep, 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 yep. Oh my god! to a guy who voted to filibuster the January sixth commission,
2: uh-huh. and she gave
0: an interview in which she said the answer is not to change the rules, it's to change the behavior. And so I've I've read a lot of interviews with Manson and Cinema, and they both they both seem either deeply delusional.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: About how much behavior it is possible to change in today's Republican party, or they act, they don't care like they don't care about getting anything done uh like they think things are hunky-dory and they're just like setting the I don't know I mentioned the old right but like cinema, I don't know what she's trying to set herself up for, but she's at this point I think, gonna have a hard cool. time getting the nomination again so no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's going on in their heads but but they're standing in the way of something really important uh- and uh
1: Yeah, I I don't know what's going on in their heads either or why they uh, not only continue to stand in the way of something important, but apparently, you know, with cinema going out of her way, joining Republican senators, John Cornyn, to do this now. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt, sort of, for the moment, David. Uh, You know, Manchin claims that reforming the filibuster would, in his words, uh, destroy the country or break the government or whatever he said. What about the concerns that he and cinema could be right about that or or that even if it doesn't break the country, the Democrats will, you know, come to rue the day that they gave away the power of the minority to block legislation in, in Congress, in the Senate. I mean, I suspect they had second thoughts about doing away with the filibuster for judicial nominees, which they did under Harry Reid, because then it eventually allowed Donald Trump and the Republicans to pack the court with boatloads of unqualified Hard right wingers. It gave them the uh, the go ahead to uh, do away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, which allowed them then to pack the Supreme Court with uh, with with three uh, right wingers. Uh, Is is there anything we should look at with Manchin and Cinema that maybe they're on to something? Maybe they're looking out for the best interest down the road, at least uh, for Democrats, or is there nothing there at all?
0: No, there's nothing there at all. I mean, it's okay. right. the, the best credit I can give to them. I mean, the, 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 the kindest case I can make about them is that they, they really believe what they're saying, mm-hmm. and that's certainly possible. But from my perspective, the filibuster itself has been one of the major problems with American democracy over the last 20 years that is you know, requiring a supermajority to pass routine legislation mm-hmm. has caused us to forego addressing all kinds of problems that have arisen in our society in my adult lifetime that have basically gone unaddressed. Not only that, but it's really not about getting the minority a seat at the table because we never actually come to any compromises about the big issue. Like, the filibuster has become a vehicle for a, a minority mm-hmm. to block what the majority was elected to do. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's to block
1: the majority. It's not to uh, force the majority to compromise more as Republicans, and yeah, Joe Manchin likes to pretend, I guess, at this point.
0: Right, exactly, and if what they really want is bipartisanship like if the, if Mansion and Cinema, if their dream is to is to be the kingmakers in the Senate and to be able to go and, and, and you know corral Collins and Murkowski and what remains of the moderate Republicans and and, mm. and you know sort of dictate the policy agenda, the filibuster is actually standing in the way of that rather than helping them do that mm. right? because the filibuster creates all of these incentives for the minority party to obstruct because obstruction pays, mm. obstruction makes the president's party look bad. Makes the Senate majority look bad, um, and it increases the likelihood that you can come back into power. And if you if you removed that incentive in the form of the filibuster from the Senate, mm-hmm. it would make possible, I think, opportunities for for Manchin and Cinema to work with Collins and Murkowski and to find six other people in the Senate and to you know to do this the middle of the road policy agenda, which you know would be better than nothing, right? And so I don't understand from their perspective, they are watching their efforts at bipartisanship implode in their faces, like as we speak. Mm-hmm. And it's becoming harder and harder to sustain the story that what they're doing is like an elaborate dance so that they have to be, like, turned down dramatically and publicly by Republicans on something that has massive public support. And then they'll be like, "Okay, we tried. (laughs) Yeah. We tried, but the filibuster had to go. And if the January 6th commission was not that thing, I don't know what would be. I just don't know what it would be. Yeah. So I'm uh, sort of banging my head against the wall here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they they looked at that and then that was the vote after which, you know, again, a majority voted in 5435, a big majority voted in favor of that. January sixth, commission an attack on their own workplace. And yet, even with that majority, they can't have the commission. And you ask Joe Manchin about it. And he says, well, no, this doesn't make any difference. I still don't want to break the government. I guess he's waiting for the MAGA mob to come in and break it at this point. David Ferris yeah. as as noted at the top, uh, Joe Biden seems to, you know, ha- seems to be upping the pressure on Mansion and Cinema in his remarks uh, in Tulsa on Tuesday, citing them if not by name as the two senators who were who are, you know, blocking his agenda in the Senate. What more do you believe that Biden and or Senate majority uh, leader Chuck Schumer should be doing? I mean, you know, you can charge that uh, people aren't taking this seriously enough. They're not hearing the warnings. They're sleepwalking uh, through all of this. But what more can Biden and Schumer do as you see it? And and by the way, isn't there a danger that if you push uh, Manchin uh, far enough, he could, you know, flip to the GOP side entirely and there goes the entire Democratic majority in the Senate? You know, it's
0: possible, but uh, I'm, I'm not that concerned about it. I mean, we, we just have four years. Of President Trump just lighting into to multiple Republican senators and calling them cowards and idiots and mm-hmm. slamming their wives and, and insane, mm-hmm. <laughs> just all kinds of stuff. And they didn't bolt, you know. They didn't. I don't even think they thought about it. And I think that the, the incentives to stay within the Democratic Party are, are stronger than we would think for both of them.
2: OK. Because I think they
0: both have zero chance of winning a Republican primary. And that's that's the reality of party switching these days.
1: Well, may, maybe, that- but but Trump was pretty close to, uh, you know, to Manchin throughout those four years. But OK, so given that, what should Biden and, and, and Schumer be doing at this point beyond what they're doing now? I, is there anything that can be done? I
0: mean, I'm, I was glad to see Biden go public with his frustration. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that has to happen. I think it has to be a,
2: a combination
0: of sort of public pressure, you know, not not Trump-style, you know, like...
2: Bullying.
0: Uh, right, not bullying. Though. Right. Like, that's not going to work. But but certainly venting his frustrations and, and identifying people by name and saying, this is why we don't have voting rights reform. This is why we don't have the minimum wage, raised. This is why we're not going to get infrastructure. It's because, you know, uh, my friends Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema won't do it. I don't understand why. And then he's got to call them in. I mean, he, he and Schumer got to call them both in and be like, look, wh- like, what has to happen here? Yeah. Um, if there's no way that you're going to move off the filibuster rule, you tell me, like, you, you have to show me what you can do under the existing rules, like you have to prove to me that you can get something done. Right. Like if you think that there's ten votes for voting rights in the Republican caucus, go get them.
1: D- but don't you yeah, so, don't go. you don't you think they've, he's done that by now? I think he's. I think there's been several uh, uh, you know reports that Biden has met you know one on one with Manchin. Surely he has done that by now. What does it take, Joe? What do you need uh, to do to to come on board to get this passed? Uh, you know to to give yourself the ability to vote against the filibuster, at least when it comes to democracy-related uh, reforms. Surely he's done that, right?
0: Uh, you would think, right? But, yeah. I mean, it does. It also seems like Biden is just coming around to an understanding that that, mm. that these two could wreck his presidency.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure he understands that they could destroy democracy, like, almost single-handedly. Yeah. But I think he's coming around to, fin- I think he's finally seeing, like, oh, they're not going to budge on this, right? Like, it's not just that they're not going to budge. I think Biden also had some hope that he could get 10 Republicans to do X, Y, and Z.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, just because, you know, I've got all these relationships, You know, I was in the Senate. The greatest deliberative body in the world, and they wouldn't betray me. And so there's that, there's that time. And I don't, he wasn't like naive, right? He was the vice president under Obama. right? Like, he, he knows what McConnell was up to during that time, but I yeah. think he still held on to the hope that he could change things just with mm-hmm. the sheer force of his goodwill. The same mistake Obama made. Yeah. Um, and so Biden at least has, has realized his mistake. Than, than Obama
1: did. Well, if, if he called this month the month of action, uh, maybe he's got something up his sleeve. I don't know. Schumer's willing to bring this bill out, put it on the floor, even though he knows they're One vote short of the 50 they would need to pass, uh, even if they did somehow do away with the filibuster. Maybe they have plans this month. I don't know. I guess we have to give them the benefit of the doubt because, you know, Schumer is bringing that forward. Uh, Quickly, David, I got sort of two more points I want to ask you about that are probably uh, unfair questions to ask you in the short time we have. But you explained in that Vox interview uh, that, quote, there's a very circular structure to this kind of proto authoritarianism that we're now seeing in the country. You said you have anti-democratic practices at the state level that produce minority Republican governments, meaning Republican majorities that are elected by a minority of voters thanks to gerrymandering and so forth on the state level, that then they pass anti-democratic laws that end up in front of courts that are appointed by a minoritarian president. That would be Trump, who received fewer votes than Hillary Clinton and approved by a minoritarian Senate because of the structural imbalance of the Senate that gives, you know, two senators to Montana with 600,000 residents and two senators to California, we have 40 million residents. And you say that that will then, you know, that court would then rule to uphold these anti-democratic practices at the state level. The whole thing seems to be rigged, if you will, in favor of the minority. So my question (laughs) that you have to answer in 30 seconds, uh, how how did any of this happen? Was this the design of the founders to ensure the rights of the minority would not be crushed by the majority? Or is this just years of, you know, sort of manipulating our system to the advantage of Republicans while Democrats were, yes, sleepwalking as democracy was weakened decade after decade after decade?
0: It's a, it's a little of both. You know, I mean, the, some of these institutions are just the product of messy compromises at the at the convention. And the senate is, is an example of that right mm-hmm. like i don't think the founders would have looked at what's happening today and been like that that looks great let's do that <laughs> but they did they did have to appease the small states to get them on board by giving them equal representation in the senate and they just could not foresee how unequal the states would ultimately be mm. and so of course they just didn't foresee how democracy would evolve and change they they didn't foresee gerrymandering right like they didn't really have a they didn't really have a vision for how that would work because they didn't envision political parties being as strong as they are mm. they didn't know what they, they couldn't anticipate partisanship they couldn't anticipate this like very hardened two-party system that we have
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so but the sum total is like the institutions themselves give too many opportunities for minorities to win power despite despite not winning a yeah. majority of the vote yeah and I mean, then you have Republicans on top of that exploiting those loopholes making them worse yeah. um, trying to, to manipulate the vote and the in the the ultimate outcome of that is, like, they want to turn the country into Wisconsin, Brad. I mean, you know, a place where it's impossible for the opposition to win the state legislature because of the gerrymandering. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: And then, you know, and then it's impossible to change the makeup of the Supreme Court. And then you have the governor who's basically powerless. And that's not democracy. You know, that's that's no. what we call competitive authoritarianism. It's, it's facade elections that look like democracy, but where control of the executive and control of the agenda is fundamentally not at stake. And yeah. is, I fear that's where we're headed.
1: Yeah, I warned years ago about the Wisconsinization of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back when we started to see what the, what they were willing to do there, uh, and now we have seen it in state after state after state, to the point where you know all of the GOP states are now doing that, and now that is in fact what they hope to do at the national level. It seems the the one point of hope on the way out the door, uh, David Ferris, is that you have a new book, I think, coming out next month. Uh, if I'm correct, is that still titled "The Kid"? The kids are all left. How young voters will unite America? Yeah,
0: yeah. So no, that's out. That's out. So oh, it's, it's out. Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of the many books that got sort of swallowed by the pandemic, but okay. But it, but it's out there, and uh, it it does tell a hopeful, you know, medium term. Story about um, about this long swath of Democratic-leaning voters who are now into the middle into their middle age and still voting Democratic, and that's I think part, partly the reason why Republicans are so afraid of the electors. They they see and understand that, um, and so the book is kind of a look at you know what the impact of that might be in the long run why people don't get more conservative as they age uh just kind of busting a couple of myths about young people and their liberalism <laughs> well i
1: will um, i will overlook all of uh the concerns we have here uh we've discussed today and the fact that you did not send me a signed copy of that book <laughs> to uh focus on the subtitle how young voters will unite america And I will hold you to that, David Ferris. Uh, you got a few years to prove it out. We'll see if you're right. David Ferris (laughs) is the uh, associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago, contributor at The Week, author of In in Addition to the Kids Are All Left, How It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. They better get to work. David Ferris, always great speaking with you, my (laughs) friend. Uh, Hope to do it again very soon.
0: Likewise, Brad. Great to be on the show again. Thank and, uh, yeah Hopefully we'll still have a democracy next time.
1: We'll see. Boy, thank you, sir. <laughs>
0: all right. Take care.
1: Okay, we have got to get out. Sorry <laughs> yes. about that, Des. No worries. Uh, thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. Sorry we sometimes don't bring you such good news, but we do the best we can. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free at brandblog.com, all of which is made possible by uh, you folks who help us out by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves drop me an email if you like I'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters you'll find me simply at the BradBlog. that's it, uh, until we meet again hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman good luck world